Welcome to African Film. African Film lovers and cinematic explorers, welcome to another episode of the African Film Podcast. Now, if this is your first time hearing about us, welcome. This is a space where we explore the African film industry through the eyes of its practitioners. Today, our special guest brings us into the world of documentaries and cultural archiving. Our guest is a creative strategist, a versatile filmmaker, and the director of my favorite South African film of 2022. Now, this film is a documentary that is over five years in the making and in which the research team have access to four to 5,000 audio tapes from one of South Africa's most iconic and cultural reservoirs in Dr. Joseph Shabalala. The film I'm talking about is Music Is My Life, and today we'll be getting to know a bit about the film director and his journey in weaving together this rich and inspirational tapestry of seminal South African history. He has been all around the world sharing this film and story, and today we're privileged to have him on our platform. I'm talking about Mpumi Supambele. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right. I'm happy. I'm excited to have this conversation. I'm happy to have you on the platform. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I don't think I could gush about Music Is My Life enough. So, but before we get to Music Is My Life, we have to start with you. And I'm curious, why Super? What is the Super in Pumi Super Mbele? I was a bit chubby and i was in a band with another brother but like yeah completely different things so i was like kind of a rapper so i was kind of like super fat as in fat on the mic not literally fat body wise but i was a chubby kid so i became super fat i don't know if it makes sense to you so you were throwing them fat rhymes yeah oh there you go so i was throwing like some super fat rhymes and then that just stuck around and when i started moving within the space of directing commercials um to create a separate brand from being a strategist at agencies i had to go ahead with super because already there was another director called Bumi, who's also a friend of mine and so I had to, yeah, create this other character that's super. So this band, was it like a musical band, a hip-hop band? What type of band was it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of like a hip-hop live slash rap band with some few people that are out there in, in the industry. But like, I wouldn't get into that, you know? So, yeah. Why, why don't you want to get into it? Is it because it's the previous chapter nah. of your life? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Because now then we're going to dive into, oh my gosh, you were in that. Oh, were you, is that you? So now let's not dive into that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. One day, probably. I think it's very relevant because it links, since we're talking about a music documentary and a musician, like it's a, there is an actual causal link one could try and, you know, throw out there but for me music has always been the backdrop of everything I create you know I come from a family where music was just playing around not even a family a community you know Soweto music was always playing pumping everywhere you come out of your house the next door neighbor's got a speaker outside he's cutting grass he's playing some probably the OJs and then you know at home they're playing Miles Davis and next door they probably playing lady smith black mambazo or the manhattan brothers so music has always been just the backdrop of like my upbringing and 
if we'll be traveling to Eastern Cape with my dad, he will always put like a cassette of some sort. You know, he was like a jazz fanatic. My grandmother was like very in love with classic music. And my mom was just like major versatile when it comes up to music. I actually got into hip hop through my mom. We had like TV pop at home and it was like an era of East Coast, your Snoop Dogg and whatever. And I mean, my mom used to allow me to watch those music videos, even although they were like kind of swearing and grangy or whatever. So it was just, it just made sense that like automatically um, when I started gravitating towards documentaries and long form music would be, you know, cause also when I started with film, I started with music videos before even getting into directing commercials or doing TV series. Music videos were like the first, first thing that I started directing. And I think uh, I've actually written articles about this, but I kind of feel, especially like if you study music videos from like the 90s, music videos kind of seem to be like a very good playing ground for visual creatives to kind of build their voices because you know your Michael Bay's came from music videos even David Fincher John Singleton yeah I mean even Ridley Scott you know people don't know he started with videos before he moved into creating his own agency you know he did stuff for the Beatles and different different guys actually my favorite directors they started crafting uh, music videos you know it also gives you a sense of an eye like because each and every image, when you do music videos, it's got to look pretty. I mean, you're selling a record. You're selling the brand, which is an artist. So everything is got to look pretty. It's also an emotional abusive space because <laughs> there's no money in music videos. So you, you get like a very small budget and you got to like craft amazing work. So that's literally where I started. One of the questions which we ask every guest on the podcast, since this is an African film podcast, is what is your favorite African film and why? Storyline, costume, background, tonality, cinematography, language. I think it was probably one of the best crafted films for me that ever came out of uh, South Africa and uh, that will be uh, Mapanzula by Oliver Schmitz. It just got remastered. I believe the remastering of it happened last year. Probably one of the most iconic films for me to ever come out out of South Africa, out of Africa actually for me. It's like I still look at it and think wow, the costume like the detail of each and everything in that film just made sense, you know? Like, I even remember scenes. I mean, I've watched it so, so long ago, and I even remember scenes, you know? There's a scene <laughs> where they're in the bedroom, and he wants to sleep with his girlfriend, and she goes like, you're not going to have it now. I tried to give it to you last night, but you didn't want it. And he's like, really, really, ah, you know, come on, baby, come on, come on. And she goes like, no, 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 Temba. And then he's like, I then futzek, you know? I mean, I, like, I remember moments. I mean, and there's a scene where they go and rob this white man in town. Like, the, how the story was crafted. And I feel like, had we continued crafting stories like that, you know? Because, like, again, going back to what we spoke about now, music videos, 
because music videos you gotta think about the costume you gotta think about the makeup you gotta think about the overall curation of how the music yeah it's it's blending in into all of this you know like you gotta end mapanzola for me it's exactly that so yeah mapanzola definitely one of the most iconic films for me so can you for the people who may be hearing about this for the first time and for the unlucky people like myself who have yet to watch it but now actually have an opportunity to watch it can you give us like a brief synopsis what mapanzula is all about it's centered around apartheid era and the division between blacks and whites in south africa that was taking place but it focuses on these two young black men that are hustlers, amapanzola, you know, from the style to how they dress, to the music they listen to, and how they maneuver around life and their hustle, basically. It looks at their life and how if opportunities were given to them, chances are they wouldn't have become the people that they became, but kind of like they had no choice but to become the people that they they were forced to be by the system. So it's it's partially a, a coming of age story of two young black men, but focusing on one particular black man. I think his name is Temba in the film. Here it's saying, yeah, Panic Tembam, Johannes Panic Tembam Zolo. Yes, yes. Iconic, iconic film for me. I think if it was released during this era, it, w- it, it would have been one of those Oscar contenders. No, not that it matters that, you know, our films have to win Oscars, but it would definitely be like a contender because it's just like one of the most beautiful films for me, you know. And I relate to it, you know, because I come from that background. I come from the township and I know those characters and those people are people that, you know, either you were very scared of or you just admired because of how they dressed, how they took care of themselves, how they walked, you know, like everything about the film, you know, like even how Temba walks, it's like, it's a proper panzula. That film was screened at Cannes and was South Africa's actual edition for the 62nd Academy Awards. And fun fact, tying it back to references about music the cinematographer even though it's not the musician's name was rod stewart just kind of throwing that out there as a fun fact (laughs) (laughs) we now know what what your entry into the film industry was in terms of music videos but what was the thing which actually made you want to be in the film industry I think like exactly that because of the political landscapes and my family being involved, I spent quite a lot of time alone and at home. And whenever I was given an opportunity, movies were like, my grandmother just used to feed me movies, you know, and my mom, which is like I said to you, Radio Pop and TV Pop were accessed to me. So this other world was constantly being present. You know, and in Soweto, there was a cinema called AA2. So AA2 will have movies the whole day. Like literally on weekend, you could get in at like eight and it was called Kiddies and it will finish like at five. And that's when grownups will come in and watch real big, like real movies that were not for kids. So that would be like your... The good and the bad and the ugly, your Scarface, the Godfathers, all those kind of movies, you know, that were apparently not for kids. And then that's where grown-ups will come and we'll see these guys that were like known to be gangsters in the hood and they would drive there with their girlfriends. So 
my grandmother on school holidays will buy me like a ticket for the entire day. So I will literally wake up, clean up, and then go to AA to spend the whole day there, like literally whole day watching uh, Kung Fu movies like Snake in the Idle Shadow, Masters of Chang, 16 Commands of Shaolin, all these movies. I mean, I know them like, like crazy. So yeah, and I mean, that became my life. And every time I'll come back, she will ask me to tell her what happened, you know, and I will have to narrate the movies back to her and I will make the sounds and I'll tell her what it was like, you know, do the, <laughs> you know what I mean? And she will literally entertain that. She will literally inter like literally entertain that. So that was like my first kind of introduction to, to movies. My grandmother, she's literally the one that like will pump me with that. And even theater. I mean, I remember us going to watch Pinocchio at Chobek Theater and she was not allowed as a black woman. And she was like, well, I'm going to get in. And that was my first time witnessing proper theater, you know, with costumes, with all of this, the stuff apart from theater that used to happen at school. But also every time we go back home to Eastern Cape, stories were always a thing that was shared around. But proper cinema... Um, a year two in Soweto was like proper an introduction to me to get into films. With you, you said that you went from essentially you got in through music videos, then got into the ad space. Is it a fair assumption that it was from music videos to the ad space? And then from the ad space, you then started trying to find to become a feature film director um, in terms of with your with this current documentary or what is your current like career trajectory kind of taking you into from music videos into how we get to documentaries? Yeah, actually, not necessarily in that particular way. I got into music videos because exactly of the love of music. And I was working at agencies as, as a creative. And Jobek at the time was just buzzing. And with a couple of friends, we used to do gigs at Carfax to, to survive, to earn money, to buy clothes, because we liked clothes, you know, still do. But like working at agency as like these young creatives, it was not giving us enough so we were hosting gigs at Carfax having DJs and all of that and then we just became friends with a couple of artists basically yeah and then automatically then we'll listen to a song and then they'll be like ah it would be great to a video and I mean I, I remember bands like Potter's Head Massive Attack very offbeat trip-hop kind of sounds were like a thing right and then the, the first magazine called Shots, it was only accessed by guys that were working at agencies because like you had to pay to get shots, you know? So it was kind of like a showreel of all the agencies in the world. So like there's agencies and production houses, they would be like top 20 and they'll put their work there. And then they will have a disc that comes with that. So we had a friend, um, Tristan, who was working at a production house as a researcher. So I remember the first time, actually, we were sitting at his place and he played that DVD. And we saw these videos of Mark Romanek 
and all these different like very out there videos and what was crazy was and and it made so much sense the white kids were doing these crazy videos you know like i mean music videos that were directed you know mapaputi's music videos were like insane you know like he was flying he was doing crazy stuff and then once we saw this from shorts i remember thinking oh my gosh so these guys were already empowered by like this stuff and then i i think the first video that i did was mxo mxo it just released a song and uh, we linked up and we did that video you know now my mind was already thinking out there not just like basic concepts it was like oh my gosh it's possible to make someone fly so i was very interested to find out how do you do that you know because at the beginning i mean i had watched films um and films like they don't give you that dreamy world like to that level Yeah you can get really experimental with music with videos, videos without yeah, without yeah. having to explain anything Exactly and it was like oh my gosh this is real all these crazy ideas i've been thinking and thinking like ah no no one is going to buy into this it's real and then yeah so it started and then once videos obviously started becoming successful getting nominated for the summers for the channel o's and then starting to work with established bigger artists your WHPs and uh, your Tandi Somazwais and then that's where production houses like started poaching and were like yo don't you want to come and direct for us and then yeah, i started directing at different production houses started doing tv commercials and then that was also another different space because you know i got into that being naive thinking ah you just because i'm so creative they just going to give me an ad but like it was a completely different thing that's when i started realizing that oh actually you pitch against other four guys and then they choose whoever they like and it's actually not your idea they create the idea give it to you and see how you can make it better they then sit and decide whether your idea is shit or it's good if if you probably do something that they don't like or they don't see you you just don't win and it was like oh okay cool and then i just yeah i stuck into that space because it was good in terms of money and it opened a bit of creativity because when you do commercials you've got more you can shoot with alexas you can have best lenses you can use 35 mils so it's kind of like a mini film world in south africa you know you've got you got a proper set so coming from music videos where we used to just create our own set to have the luxury of like having 50 people on your shoot you know working for you and you just being the director it was like a really cool space so would you then say even that type of curatorial space and the fact that you have to learn also how to kind of build as you as you were talking about build not necessarily come up with new ideas but also build within stories which were already there and put your own spin on it kind of prepared you very much to transition into a space of documentaries where you kind of doing the same thing because you are being a vessel to someone else's either life and or movement of space. I think so, but also my 
Jenny was not going honestly to watch documentaries. I never liked documentaries. I'm not going to front. I just never <laughs> really liked. I thought documentaries were whack. I was like, there's no creativity in this. You know, you just sit and people are being interviewed and they're telling you about the story of a person that you already know. But for some very weird and interesting way when I was starting to to really lose interest within the commercial space I then started really being interested in wanting to really tell our stories that matter like really really wanting to I mean I'd done a film for Mnet uh, which was great and I mean I directed a couple of series but I also just I, I don't even know how to explain it I just had this shift in craving to tell stories you know which was I mean I even remember Motero who's a cinematographer that shot some parts of Music Is My Life him being shocked when I was like you I'm when I was telling him that like I really want to do this documentary and he was like you dokies what I was like yeah <laughs> I, I, I know you know but I also have this feeling that they can be done better they can be cinematic they can be beautiful and i hadn't seen any documentary like that apart from like national geographics you know and i'm not saying other people's dokies are not great but i honestly hadn't seen dokies that document landscape that like shoot people in different frames like even on music is my life the frames that you see are not the real frames that i had shot i had to argue a lot with producers because how I'd frame the the interviews, they felt like, oh my gosh, it's too scary. There's no way broadcasters are going to sign off to this or agree to this. Jumping on that, because you do have, within Music Is My Life, you do have sweeping shots of just landscapes where you're just watching the green forestry as you're hearing the voiceovers. But those green forestries are really kind of bringing you more also tying the land and the Ladysmith element to the story as you're hearing about it and also you do have those framings where literally you're not following like the standard rule of thirds where the headspace is meant to be in like the top second third it's literally the person exactly. is there and the, the... <laughs> it was even worse than that i mean if i can send you a screen grab of the real footage you'll be like oh my goodness me and i just i just wanted to break the format and i hope with the next couple of dockies that I would do, I'll be allowed to do that. I hope I'll get channels that are brave enough or because, you know, having delivered a product like this where it's like really successful, people can then be able to go, okay, cool, let's just break the norm. I, I just feel like there's other ways of doing interviews. I made sure that like each and every interview, it's not in one space. Smongseni, we shot uh, in two different spaces. There's, there's a shot where there's like shoes on the wall you know, hanging there. And I really had to look for that. So yeah, I just, I mean, because I come from a space where I, I really appreciate beautiful images. And it comes from, again, when you trace it back, it comes from the Chinese films. If you watch Kung Fu films, they so, that, like they so to the core of like how 
an image looks like the costume needs to look so good like one of my still favorite movies of all time hero it's like it's exactly like that you know like how the music feels how this woman's chinese gown look like you know how she moves it's so detailed and i've always been fascinated by that i mean one of my favorite directors it's wong kao hoi who just makes films that are beautiful every detail of that film the cinematography the grading everything is just like you can basically pause at any scene and grab that image and put it on the wall it's like a, a picture so for some of you who are looking for like references of Wong Kai Wai movies talking about like as tears go by the Chungking Express Fallen Angels in the mood of love my blueberry nights yes so just naming some things in case you know the way he's telling these stories afflicts you you can't know and 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 check out um Christopher Doyle who's the cinematographer that he normally works with they call him the drunken master cuz each and every set apparently is drunk and he shoots like the most beautiful images he just gives you that that image that like yeah you just absorb in it you know and and i mean for me that's that's that you know you watch films like the tree of life and you just absorbed by beauty like literally beautiful images and there's there's not much in the film it's just it's empty but like the silence on its own says it all and it mean again you know with music is my life if i can show you the first cut you you'll be surprised i mean the first 15 i think 10 minutes of the film we didn't show people's faces you know it was like taking you through this emotion of the story and the landscape and the feeling and again you know it was one of those producers broadcasters were like no we got to show people's faces you know and we got to show these interviews i was into that as well and again i wish one day to just make a a docky where we don't even show people we interviewing we just take you through this emotion and feeling and by the end of it you just like in this visual treat so with that would you ever for example consider then doing a director's cut that would then allow more of that to to show is that something which would be in the cards for you or is it something which you just want to kind of move into getting more trust than just show that with more and more films because i do understand where you're coming from in terms of like it's 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 difficult when and 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 it's not just this project you know it's like when and the, that's the thing the kind of films that i i want to make it's films that are backed up by money because i i believe in good cinematography i believe in in good location scouting you know if it's fiction costume music scoring and all of that and that costs money you know I was reading a Christopher Nolan interview yesterday where he was like you just have to find a common ground as a director if you are telling your story and telling a story of someone that gives you money you know <laughs> and that's just that's just how it is because you know? <laughs> yeah. there's there's your story and the story of the person that's giving you money and unfortunately you got to be able to try and find common ground and balance into that and i i get it i i get it maybe these ideas won't happen or we'll find someone that is like brave enough to say ah let, let's go let's dive into that you know i mean you look at what desrend engas did with iso iso it was like one of those where it's like 
people trusted and we're like let's dive into that and look what it has done it has shaped culture forever you know it really has because we still talk about it to this day now for the second half we are for the first time in the african film podcast i am relinquishing questions because we had screened music is my life at the african film club and the conversations were so robust we still had questions from the audience that they wanted to ask so we're going to take this time to just jumble a few of those questions so we can now get into part of the burning questions that some of our film enthusiasts had about music is my life one of the first ones which came from multiple people is just to ask when and how the idea of actually doing music is my life came from what was the impetus of that i'm very interested in presenting black men in a way that i know them in a way that i see black men and in a way that i was surrounded and still surrounded by black men you know and i've constantly felt like we're just not reflecting that i'm not putting gender into this i'm just choosing to present black men the way that i feel needs to be presented and so my work is centered around around that either be strategy either be films either be anything that i work around it's constantly looking at how do i present black men to the masses bab shabalala story it, it's just exactly that i mean i i went to watch the play they were performing at jobic theater and i went to watch him perform he was not there anymore it was the band with my son and i mean i remember like him being really not interested to to go and watch cuz he was like who are these guys you know <laughs> like kind of like oh my gosh how old is your son at this point Uh, he's 13 now you must have been like probably 9 at the time when we leaving and i was like ah cuz also I, i watched them and as i was sitting watching them i was just thinking what a waste of space you know cuz like obviously they take up space on stage and i was just thinking they could have just worked with the production designer you know my commercial mind was just running as they were singing i was like yo they could have dimmed the lights they could have had like snow they could have had like smoke machine you know <laughs> so all these ideas as they are performing i was like in this dream world and I, and and, and we leaving and i was like to my son's name is leo i was like ah leo you know it would have been so great if they did this and they did that don't you think you know and he was like ah dad you should do that and i guess from that day on then i was like ah yeah i should should do a doki a documentary and i mean at the time i'm not even sure that he was into documentaries you know he knew stuff still does even now and then he was like yeah you should so yeah i guess that's where it was sparked and then when i really started wanting to venture into long form bab shabalala became the character that i wanted to tell his story because of the legacy that he has created as a black man and how he carried himself and how he came from really nothing to become this icon that has just dominated the world for me there were a couple of people it was either him or brahu masigela who i had a good relationship with and then for some reason babshabalala story just became the one that kept on making sense to tell So when you were now in the space of being attached to the idea what did the family say to you when you came to them with this idea and also who did you go to first in terms of now knowing that this is what you want to do Yo it was a nightmare eh the universe is just something else there's a guy called Matwe Dwendombe partially my mentor 
he gave me quite a lot of music videos when he was like the MT at Galo, Tandiswa Mazwai, Dio, kind of a slate basically of music videos at Galo Simpiwetana. And I mean, I, I destroyed those videos, like literally, you know, he just destroyed them in, in a way that they were good. They were good videos, you know. I mean, we put Tandiswa underwater, they, like that has never happened. And it was like, what? And so the, when I started wanting to tell the story, he's the first person that I reached out to because ladies, Black Mambas always signed under Galo. I called him Mplegas, gave him a call, Mplegas, I want to tell this guy's story. Bab Shabalala, how do I do it? He was like, yo, here's Romeo. Romeo, he's their manager. You can speak to him. Got hold of Romeo. Oh my gosh, like a documentary on its own. <laughs> Flew to Devon to meet him. He wouldn't pitch up. Uh, he will, I'll fly again. He'll be like three hours late. I'll miss my flight. I'll fly him. He will take my money, not pitch up. He, it was like this constant months back and forth, back and forth. And eventually I ended up meeting up with him and he gave me mom shabalala's numbers so i called mom shabalala mom shabalala told me that i should come to ladysmith then uh, i came back to joba caroline gave me them car i went to ladysmith at some point i drove my car down there and i didn't know where mom shabalala stayed so i just went to ladysmith and looked for joseph shabalala you know and people started directing me directing me i ended up at the house met mama very warm very welcoming and they were like yeah look there's so many people that want to tell the story mandla dube was also going for the story you know i think he's he's still i don't know whether he's still gonna tell the fiction part of it or not uh mandla also wanted to tell the doggy so me and him, not per se locking horns, but he wanted to tell the story. I wanted to tell the story. So, and there were like some Americans also that wanted to tell the story. But for some weird and interesting reason, Mam Shabalala just entrusted me with the story. You know, I just built that relationship with, with her to a point whereby, you know, I used to drive to Ladysmith to just go and have conversation with her. And yeah, that just grew into this relationship with her and the family. And they just, yeah, entrusted me with the story one thing that i can resonate with is my brief so far brief relationship with documentaries or at least with trying to document people is the behind the scenes is as much of a movie as what the actual final product will become um, so I, I do resonate with that aspect because life will show you things now with that is there anything of the joseph shabalala legacy that has made a particularly profound impression on you as you came in, into contact with his family his friends the village and his world all together and if so what were those profound impressions that you were initially getting as you were coming into the space of dr joseph chapalala's legacy i i don't even know how i mean he basically archived himself you know and for a man of a particular era and the time where he lived i don't think there's any black African that has archived himself like he did he deserves a museum basically the amount of work that he's archived it's unbelievable the audio tapes the writings the pictures tape recorders it's it's just unbelievable and i just like i still can't comprehend it you know i i, I just don't like how is that possible that this man did this you know it's, it's just 
it's, it's shocking to me. He lived in an era where there was like no Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but he, he actually documented himself more than well-known people that I know today that should document themselves. So he basically recorded himself probably almost every second day or third day or every day of his life i mean there's tons and tons and tons and tons of work because i was listening to one of your other interviews and you were talking about being given forty-five thousand tapes to just go through and just even the sheer understanding of forty-five thousand tapes even if you're putting that into logistics because we have cell phones and we have a lot of space that's a lot of money and also just dedicated understanding of what it is that you want to do like how you know how? Why? At that time, why? Like, why would you do that? You know what I mean? Because, like, you're not thinking about the, like, even the word archive, it's like, it's not something that it's partially in your vocab in that particular time. So he's just like, he wanted to preserve this legacy so much that he talks about, even in the poem, about creating a school that will preserve the culture. So it's just like unbelievable. That for me is still something that I, I, I'm just like shocked at and like amazed and surprised. And that just makes me, yeah, worship him. He's like that level of Bob Marley, of Fela Kuti, these guys that are just, you know, like kind of chosen or unbelievable. Because like, I, I just, you know, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, he was already thinking about now then. Because like, why would you? Why would you record yourself? Now it makes sense, you know, because now you know that uh, there's a possibility of a documentary. Uh, there's like, there could be a museum. There could be, you know, this this is, this is a, a, at the time, none of that existed around him. If I were to speculate myself, right? Because I come from very much political grandparents in terms of both of them were political exiles. Um, they had been representatives of the UN. And in terms of even them, the stuff that my grandmother would do in terms of archiving, we have so much. <laughs> I think um, I think there's, there's like two ways of going about it if we were to speculate. One would be the just the singularity of Lady Smith's Black Mombazo and the moment that they represented being able to be South African artists who were in South Africa and were able to leave into the world and go and experience the world and get that reception and still be able to come back and have all of these experiences. I think even from that perspective, the singularity could be something. It's not to say that that singularity could be something which would make you want to say, oh, wow, this is something that's so incredible. I might want to capture or keep this as much as possible as because it is my story and my story needs to be kept for as long as like life will have me because i also know but, but but some of it he did that before even traveling the world you know don't forget also he left school when he was doing standard four and for him the first time that they started recording i guess with radio zulu and him realizing that all recording means they don't lose their voice he just started wanting to preserve it to from there himself. yeah archive himself like like Sipos Tole said, he always had a notebook. He was constantly writing. He was constantly, he was just constantly archiving himself. So you can look at it in so many different ways and we'll never have answers 
yeah, to answer your question, that's what gave me a like utmost, I guess, beyond respect, because I've always had respect for Bab Shabalala, but like that just took it to the next level of like, yo, how on earth does someone do this? And it shows in just the beauty and the scope of the documentary and how we're able to experience it. Now, the next question, which I think you've kind of answered in different ways, but I'm still going to ask it, is what were the references that inspired you in terms of creating this film's visual identity? I think the truth of the environment and that's spending time with Mama and Lady Smith going to Drunkenspeck in Davazo Kathamba, driving with Umama and him, Ubab Shabalal, just showed me the landscape and the world that they're coming from. And I just wanted to show that. And I just wanted to reflect that. And I wanted to, to bring people to spirituality as well without overly showing it, without finding ways of engaging spirituality that it's like symbols, you know, like how water is part of healing how the landscape, how it communicates with, you know what I mean? So I, I wanted to, to reflect that. I wanted to have these symbols that are part of spirituality coming to connect with us. And I just also did, like I already said earlier on, I just wanted to break the norm and the format of documentaries, you know, and I just didn't want to have someone sitting down and, and having a black backdrop portrayed on, on a tripod, press play, someone tells us the story of Bab Shabalala. I just never, because that doesn't interest me. So I just didn't feel like it would interest people. I just wanted to reflect, because the film is also still a reflection of you, the person that's telling it. The story might not be you because it's someone else's story, but the film has to have a bit of your yourself in it. You know, that's how I see the world and that's how I see images and that's how I see spirituality. That's how I see music. That's that's how I see the world. With the amount of scope that we have spoken about, even with the stuff that you've had and during the interviews, there are things which were obviously had to get cut down during editing for logistical reasons. But were there specific things which within that cutting out that you wish for any reason you kind of kept any like anecdotes or stories like what was were there any parts which to this like right now that are on the cutting room floor that really still hold on to you and if so what would those be it's just a shot that bothers me too to this day i wouldn't have put Rovu youth choir there you know it was an argument that we had constantly with local producers and international producers yeah apart from that i mean you know, it's so difficult. I mean, the amount of footage we had, man, the amount of archives that we had, the amount of, you know, what you see, there's more to take out for me. There's literally quite a lot that I would take out. And I was, I will, I'll basically strip the film and make it bare and just empty and make it boring. I will let it exhaust you. By the time you finish watching it, you want to go sleep. That's, that's the kind of film that I wanted to tell. That was the first cut where... You watch it by the time it ends you've cried you exhausted and just go like you oh, don't want to sleep and um but because there's many people and things had to change so um with a project of this magnitude where you're dealing with foundations and you're dealing with such legendary figures that have so much access there are obviously a lot of stakeholders involved i mean just watching the film alone you see a lot of these different names from your skies to all of these different places. 
Now, as a as the creative helm, as a director, how do you go about managing all of these? What was the process in like managing all of these stakeholders and bringing them into a vision that you felt you were satisfied with? Were you satisfied with it, um, with the final product? But also, like, what is what goes into managing such a product with so many stakeholders involved? Oh my gosh, it's a, it's a nightmare, man because each and every individual, they've got their own view on how to tell the story. You know, they've got their own view on what they think it's the right way of telling the story. You hear directors, your Nolans talk about the studio, you know, like Zach Schneider now, he's got his own Justice League's cut, you know, the studio's cut. And, and I get it now. You know, because you've got the many people that have their own ideas and it's not bad. You know, what you also got to understand is they know their audience. You know, Sky knows their audience. Uh, ZDF know their audience. You know, they've done market research. They've done algorithms. They've done, they know their audience. So there's a particular way that they want the film to resonate with their audience. So you've got to be able to fit your idea with also them and how they want the story to come out and come across because it's also business you know it's it's the same as um the sales agent you know for for him paul to to sell the film to your to your to your hbo's and to all these networks he knows what what format works, you know? So he, you have to accommodate that. You have to understand that this is, this is the business. You can't just, you can't just make your form as a director and then, and then expect to, to then, that people are gonna buy into it. These people know how this works. So, but it's difficult because you also have your own vision that you're trying to protect, you know, and you're trying to, to preserve because you've got a particular way of how you want to tell the story or how you see the story unfolding. So yeah, it was challenging, very challenging. Yeah, you just took me back there emotionally. It was very deep. I mean, yeah, some, you know, I, I, th I think actually filmmakers don't talk about therapy. I, like, I think after such big projects, you got to go to therapy, man, and, and really deal with yourself or go on a retreat because it's intense. The energies are heavy because, because it's business, you know? People, people, you have to sell this. You, the investment that's been put into the film, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back, you know? Do you have a process of letting go of a film or letting go of a project in terms of once you've actually finished it and now it's out there or is, is that something which you're also now trying to find for yourself in terms of how you release it from it being a creative project into something which now exists by itself well no because here i am at nine o'clock having a conversation with you about it you know after a year of finishing it so not really it's it's like your child you can't have your child and then go like i'm no longer going to be your parent you unfortunately they with you forever and and that's exactly that sure like a child again there's parts of your child that you might not like but that's who they are 
And that's what they've become, you know. I watch the film, there's moments that I'm like, oh gosh, that shouldn't be there. That should that shouldn't have never been there. But certain decisions that had to be made because like already what I said to you, it's either ZDF wanted that or Sky wanted that or guys in LA wanted that or local producers wanted that or sales agent wanted that. And in all of that, you also got to compromise. You can't be like this hard knock person that goes no 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 it's my vision it's my vision as a director then they'll be like ah go ahead then or like many people will be like no you can't me paying for this with all of that one of the final questions we're going to ask from the q a are there any other artists you'd like to also cover in this manner going forth and if so who are those artists in terms of doing this type of documentary spotlight format of other because you have spoken about wanting to focus on the nuancing of how black men are represented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's quite there's quite a few. I mean, Desmond Tutu is very interesting to me. Um, he's a very interesting subject that I think he's been told, but like there's a particular way that I think he needs to be told. And so I'm very interested in that. But also I'm interested in stories that resonates with the world. There's a few local stories, but the question again relies on maybe other guys can do it you know that want to tell stories that are south african based you know original for south africans i'm i'm interested in telling stories that can resonate with the world in china and germany in italy and they can know those characters or they partially know who those characters are so do do definitely he's my kind of interest at the moment that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at uh, telling his story. And I mean, obviously there's others that at the moment I can't, I can't mention, but like currently now, as I'm sitting with you, Dudu is my interest. In wrapping up, I think we, we have had some different conversations about this, but with all of this that's happening and you moving with such a big piece and such a resonant piece of work. What has that opened up for you? And where is Mpumi um, Mbele now going? What's the next like two, three years looking like for you idealistically? Uh, dinosaur projects, man. Spitting fires. Um, huge stuff. You know, most of it I can't, I can't say, unfortunately, because, you know, it's, conversations it's development phases it's channels sitting with these books that i want to say ah this 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 but i can't be able to but like definitely what i can say now um is definitely due to story i'm very interested in that centered around the truth and reconciliation era um there's a very uh, no i can't say it but um centered around music as well that that yeah, we're partially definitely developing. Uh, it's already, it's like already got legs. I think I'm very excited about that as well. Very, very excited because it's within my space, music, fiction, definitely. Again, that as well, it's getting legs. Period piece, huge period piece, very huge. It's been whew, three years, I guess, in development. And so it's also starting to shape itself very huge as well i guess that i can say yeah the battle of san juana oh wow very huge very huge 
very dinosaur kind of like when I mean dinosaur, I just mean huge, you know, so that I can mention as well. So yeah, but like like I already said to you, I'm very interested in, in stories that uh, offer global appeal. You know, I'm sure there'll be local stories that I'll do for local platforms, but I I think the world is just big and I wanna I just wanna tell stories that like Babshabalala that like Caroline now she's in what is it Washington DC at a film festival. You know, I wanna do stories like that that like can be shown at some festivals, not even your Cannes or your Torontos, but like even festivals we don't know of because they know of the character of the person like enter spaces that are that we have never entered as south africans or as a black director so yeah if you were to impart any final piece of, of advice on any young creative who may be listening or even if it was a 20 year old version of you in terms of where this the african film space is right now and how they should be looking at positioning themselves within it what would you be saying to them bro it's gonna be very painful it's gonna be emotionally abusive to your health to your beautiful heart to your soul equip yourself just equip yourself it's not gonna be easy there's painful moments to it there's lots of painful moments to it sometimes more than joyful moments to it you know and just equip your heart, you know, because when some of these decisions are happening as a sensitive soul, you, you take it very personal. And it's very hard to, to separate business and self. Just know that it's, it's not an easy journey, you know, and no one ever talks about the pain that you have to go through. And to my fellow brothers that want to come in, brothers, sisters, what does my son say? Dad is no longer just brothers and sisters. There's, there's other people that identify themselves as different, different identities, you know? So to my fellow humans, yo, it's not easy. The thing is about filmmaking, if it's in you, it's just in you, man. You just, you just want to tell stories, man. You just want to tell stories. It's, it's not easy, it's painful, it's hard, but you just want to tell stories and just continue, just continue. There'll be like one that will break and maybe that one that break, that you think it's your break, it might not even be your break. You just gotta just put another foot forward, you know? I mean, I look at other fellow filmmakers, your Akeem's, that I know, you know, that have done films that they thought were going to be their breaks, never did. And the ones that they really didn't think would be their breaks, those are the ones that changed their lives. So you just got to keep at it. But know that it's not easy. Know that it's painful. Know that it will hurt you. Know that it will make you sad lots of times. You know, you'll be in rooms where people shit on your idea and you, you will take it personal because that's your child know that like there'll be quite a lot of times where you know you're going to be fighting because of money issues but like you just gotta keep on pushing those are very powerful words to end with and i just want to thank you for giving us your time and for being such a giving and honest and vulnerable speaker within this interview i think we've 
not only had a chance to really talk about South African film, but really go into African cinema, world cinema, your taste, your journey. And I think it is a rather special story that we get to unravel. And I can't wait to see more of what your journey then continues to grow into because it's just, yeah, it, it, it feels like as much as you have said there is all of this pain and there's this pain and and journey that we kind of go into can't wait to see how more of that kind of blossoms hopefully more into really great projects for you as you've been talking about all of these dinosaur projects but just really the attention to detail that you give or that you gave music is my life and that you give to how you speak really resonates as to the type of meticulous creative that you are and yeah i just really wanted to say thank you for giving us your time for giving us the space for giving us this film and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation um i enjoyed the film and i genuinely wish you all the best and i cannot wait to see more of what comes from your incredible journey thank you very much yeah thank you thank you for the opportunity thank you for this and i'm sure we'll have more of these conversations who knows more collaborations the world is uh, it's collaborating that's my belief those are great words to live by and thank you for listening to this episode of african film we hope that you enjoy this exploration of african cinema with us